is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If you're among the millions of people who have an iPhone or iPad or some other kind of Apple thingamajig, you may want to update your devices right now. Apple says it found some serious security vulnerabilities that could possibly allow cyber hackers to take complete control of the devices. We'll go in-depth into how this was found and how you can protect yourself. The number of monkeypox cases in L.A. County doubling in just the past two weeks. Mexico taking a different path when it comes to energy and climate change. It's pushing for more oil. And a new study suggests that a lot of cancer cases, well, they might be preventable. Are you feeling lonely at work? Does nobody want to be your friend? Or do you not want to be anybody's friend? Uh, we'll talk you about, about that. Are talking about me? Or... Yeah, this is personal. <laughs> is this personal? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about how more people don't do the, like, work friends thing, uh, getting happy uh, hour after the uh, after yeah. the Friday shift. Uh, House of Dragon is finally here, the prequel to Game of Thrones. Also, the Lord of the Rings show is coming, so they're going to go head-to-head. And then couples in a new reality show are filming everything, and we mean everything, to help improve their love lives. Well, we start with Apple's security issues. Chris Furtick is Director of Incident Response and Security Engineering with Fortalize Solutions. It's a cybersecurity consulting firm. Chris, thanks for being with us. So I noticed that the other day I I came home and I saw that uh, there was an update for my iPhone and there was an update for my MacBook. And, you know, these happen, as you know, fairly often. And I didn't think that much of it. And they weren't very uh, explanatory in in what the purpose of the updates were. But now I understand it was pretty significant. Yes, these flaws are considered critical uh, flaws in the software. So you absolutely should be uh, updating all your devices once you get home. Uh, This is the sixth flaw that we found in Apple software this year. So they're, they're becoming more and more frequent, but these are absolutely critical uh, flaws and they allow an attacker to be able to take entire control of your iPhone or your MacBook. How good would that attacker have to be to do that though? I mean, are we talking like anybody can get hacked if someone knows what they're doing or like if you're a celebrity and or a CIA agent, then you really need to update. <laughs> Yeah, so we advise several high-profile individuals and organizations, and we're advising them uh, to update their software immediately. Uh, So right now, it takes a a relatively skilled hacker, but in a couple of days, it will take basically a script kitty, what we call them. Uh, Folks, uh, it's become more prevalent. Uh, They'll be able to find snippets online on the dark web and be able to infiltrate these devices. So it's important to get those updates in absolutely quickly. You said that these incidents are becoming more frequent. I think you said this was the sixth time this year, right? Why? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I would change that around and say I'm concerned about these, but I'm also concerned about the ones that we aren't hearing about. So first off, why are we hearing more of them? As Apple begins to morph their uh, operating systems, you know, applications that were only built for iPhone now run on uh, your your macOS device as well, we're going to see more of these um, situations. But I'll tell you, Apple's not alone. Google also released a zero-day patch yesterday as well for Chrome. So um, big tech has been plagued with these vulnerabilities over the past six to 12 months. Now, is it supposed to work where you guys and other big tech security firms discover these and then let them know? Or are they always trying to hack themselves, too, to find their own flaws? Or are they kind of blind to those? 
Yeah, it's both. So the, they have what they call bug bounty programs. So individuals and researchers come th can come through and find these and then submit them to the big tech. Or sometimes we as researchers uh, in, in firms come in and say, hey, we're seeing this type of uh, behavior and activity. How do we explain it? So is there a, you know, just like with vaccines, with COVID, for example, everyone is talking about, is there one vaccine that will eventually take care of everything? Is there a, a theoretical one fix that will eventually take care of this issue so that people don't have to consistently update their computers and phones? Yeah, so security um, is a journey, not a destination. So historically, Apple has always been more secure than some of the other operating systems. Is that changing? Is it always going to be that way? We can't answer that for sure. But right now, there's not a magic silver bullet uh, that would keep you protected uh, long term. However, I will tell you, it's incumbent upon us as consumers to make sure that we're protecting ourselves. So making sure we're using good passwords, making sure we're not clicking on links that come in emails and downloading attacks. Those are things that are protect us, even if this uh, vulnerability exists. Chris Furtick with Fortalize Solutions. Right now, though, the latest data showing the number of monkeypox cases in Los Angeles County has doubled in the last two weeks. There have now been more than 1,000 cases in the county overall. Now, this comes as public health officials are working to get more vaccine doses out there. Uh, we were expecting to talk with uh, Dr. We, we, we do have the doctor, yes? He is coming to the line. He's coming to the line. Is there a doctor in the house? And apparently the answer is any <laughs> <Yes>. second now. <laughs> Dr. Adam uh, Sukia uh, Cohn, who's Director of Advocacy and Policy Research in the Public Health Division of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation that's here in L.A. Doctor, are you with us? I sure am. You are? Okay, great. So uh, where do we stand in L.A. now? It, it, it seems with these numbers that we're looking at, a doubling, uh, it seems as we're not really getting a handle on this. Is that an accurate perception? Considering that we are not getting enough doses into arms, I would say absolutely. Are we past the point of being able to get a handle on it? Um, you actually don't have to take my word for that. I, I believe that the... Uh, the federal government has already said that we've kind of missed the opportunity to get a, get control of this virus. So for somebody who is in a vulnerable population, uh, what do they need to do if they can't get the vaccine or if they can only get one dose because it's a two dose uh, regimen? Right. So if they only get one, they're not really protected. So what are they supposed to do it, it, since the, the main group at the moment are men having sex with men, gay, bisexual guys? Are they supposed to not have sex? So I'm going to give you a couple of answers. Of course, this is about prevention, right? Most of public health is about prevention because it's much cheaper than treatment and, and dealing with uh, the outcomes of, of a disease. So the first step, of course, is to engage in preventive measures when it comes to monkeypox. The good news is we really do understand this disease compared to where we were at the beginning of COVID. And with monkeypox, it is about skin-to-skin -skin contact for someone who may be positive with the monkeypox virus. Um, it also has to do with um, clothes and making sure that you're just kind of keeping your distance from other folks who may be, may be infectious. What I would recommend is for anyone who is engaging in sexual behaviors to just talk to your partner, make sure there's no lesions, and just to check to, to be sure that you're engaging in safe sex with people that you know. Has there been too much reticence on the part of the, the federal health officials, the CDC, to actually just come out and say that? and use the terms and, and just talk to people like adults? You know, considering that we do have a uh, pretty serious STD epidemic in the United States, 
I, I think that it's difficult for a lot of people to talk about sexual topics. Um, this is why AHF exists, because we want to decrease that stigma, say it's okay to talk about sexual topics, it's okay to talk to your partner about being safe, it's okay to talk about condoms, um, and it's okay to talk about getting tested. And where do we stand on testing? Uh, Testing is not easy, as I understand it, for monkeypox. uh, But do we have the ability to test if somebody comes in? In L.A. County, the good news is we have set up uh, the private laboratories to provide monkeypox testing. Um, A lot of the red tape has been been removed, so we can use companies like LabCorp to provide testing. The problem is some of these tests require a, a wound an open wound um, to be able to swab and then test that for monkeypox. Ideally, like COVID, we would want to have tests that can detect it before somebody is potentially um, experiencing symptoms. But those are not, I do not believe those are yet FDA approved. Are we even clear on on where we stand with the vaccines that are coming in? And the the public health officials have been talking about this and asked about it, you know, a hundred times. But there was the initial doses that were coming in and promised, and then the the routine or or the way to delivery system operates, you know, interdermal versus under the skin, uh, that's changed. So that should increase your doses fivefold, they said. But then they're not going to give you as many vaccines, it seems like. So where do we end up with this? That's a big problem. Um, AHF, when we get the handful of doses that they give us, which can come anytime, we don't necessarily have a set schedule from them. Uh, we administer them immediately. Uh, we try to get them out, out the door and into arms uh, within the first couple of days of receiving them. But, for example, our flagship clinic in Los Angeles, AHF Wellness on Western, which is at 1811 Northwestern Avenue, we received uh, 20 vials, which gave us 100 doses, and they were given to us yesterday. We've given two-thirds of them as of yesterday, and we're going to give the remaining third today. But we don't know when the next shipment might come in. But isn't it the case that we don't really have very good clinical studies, with humans anyway, on whether or not the, the way that they want to give these vaccines to save some by dividing each vial into basically a fifth and the method of, of uh, giving the inoculation, as Mike was just pointing out, do we really have any good studies that show the efficacy of that? You know, I may not be the best person for that kind of information. I'm going to have to trust uh, the colleagues in my field who have hopefully studied uh, separating out the doses. But desperate times call for desperate measures, I suppose. I I think the vaccine is still effective, even if given intradermally in one-fifth of the dose. Um, Whether it's just as effective, we'll we'll find out. But something is better than nothing at the moment. Have you seen the second doses start to go into arms? Because there was, uh, the word was they weren't going to happen. And then just in the last few days, public health said, yes, we'll start sending out the text messages. That's what I just saw. Actually, I saw that yesterday as well. So I I hope that that starts happening. Um, We're going to be sending messages to our patients as well who got vaccinated with us to to return. Hopefully we'll have doses to give them when they do. When they get there. All right. Dr. Adam Sukija-Cohen, Director of Advocacy, Policy Research, Public Health Division of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation here in L.A. A little bit later on, your co-workers might not want to be your friend anymore. And the new reality show takes viewers inside the bedrooms of couples looking to spark their love lives. Right now, though, the U.S. and other countries looking more toward the renewable energy sources to fight climate change, get off fossil fuels. It uh, hasn't been easy for a lot of reason. 
But there are at least attempts. Mexico is headed in the opposite direction. Officials there making it harder for renewable energy companies as they seem to want to emphasize oil production. With us is Jeremy Martin, Vice President for Energy and Sustainability at the Institute of the Americas. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for being here. And uh, the officials there and the, the president of Mexico, not shy about this. Well, no, thanks for having me. And, and I'll start with a fancy word, anachronistic, which uh, is indeed just a, a, a overwrought way of saying that they're they're outdated in how they're approaching uh, the energy market. But they would also argue that they've been affirmed over the last six to eight months because of what's happened in the oil market and just to the fact where, uh, you know, the U.S. and others have, even though they've, they've progressed on this path of, of uh, lower carbon and net zero or whatever terminology you want to call it, uh, are nevertheless trying to find barrels. And so the, the current government is anachronistic in Mexico but feel like uh, they've been affirmed over the last six months with global developments. But I was going to say, I mean, I presume that, that people in Mexico, like anywhere else, they want to have clean air and, and, and uh, clean water to, to drink, and they don't want to see the planet become, uh, you know, a, uh, either a giant ice ball or go up in flames. So what's the reason they're doing this? So, so there's a couple of basic facts. One is, again, if we think about the president of Mexico today, Andres Manuel López Obrador, he is indeed a bit outdated in how he views the, the energy sector. And a lot of that's because he came of age politically and, and, and otherwise in the oil state of Tabasco in Mexico. And he came of age in the golden, the golden days, the golden years of Pemex and Mexican oil production uh, and just how important it was for the country, for the economy. And, and how principal that national oil company, the state enterprise, Pemex was and all that. So all of this actually distills into what's a very statist approach. And so what happens here is, in his view, the state has to be in charge. That's, in this case, Pemex. Um, and so, yes, it's about oil, but it's also, I would suggest, much more importantly about state control. So I guess it's two different things, though. You can you can open new refineries and try and get the state to take control over those things, which that maybe that's his goal. But are they actually making it harder as well to get renewable? Like, if I want to build a solar plant, like, am I going to have a hard time in Mexico anywhere else? Yeah, no. And what he's done with interference in the regulatory bodies, what he's done with interference in the policy sphere, and what he's tried to do legislatively, not so successfully, and he's been challenged in court, is indeed blocked. And again, for him, it's private companies. And so he views the private sector, particularly private renewables companies and uh, in foreign companies and and, and in some extreme cases, the Spanish companies who've been largely investing in that space in the country. So it's a great point. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive. There's absolutely the opportunity for CFE, which is the other half of the monopoly equation in Mexico on the power side. CFE could absolutely be in the game of renewables. Um, but they just don't really believe in that. And there's a whole host of technical reasons that, that may or may not be worth getting into right now. Jeremy Martin, we'll leave it there. Vice President for Energy and Sustainability, the Institute of the Americas. Jeremy, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Cancer is something anybody can get. Sometimes genetic. There's nothing you can do. Other times there are things that uh, people maybe can do to prevent it. A new study from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington finds nearly half of the cancer deaths around the world can be attributed to preventable risk factors like smoking, drinking, and having a high body mass index. Kelly Compton is with the Institute, and she is one of the study co-authors. Kelly, thanks for being with us. 
So uh, it sounds as if, based on this study, that even though people like to say if they get ill, you know, that it's not my fault, and for the most part it isn't, I suppose, this kind of makes it sound as if there's an awful lot of personal responsibility involved. Thank you so much for having me. That um, is definitely not the key takeaway that we want to be conveyed from this study. Um, there is always opportunity to modify one's exposure to risk factors. So if someone is considering quitting smoking, that's great. However, individual behaviors are influenced by one's environment. So at the population level, policies are needed that address social determinants of health. Take us through some of that then. Is this uh, what areas are more high risk if you're living in poverty or or what did you find that, that links all this together? Certainly, um, there are a number of factors uh, of one's environment that can impact behavior and uh, metabolic exposure to metabolic and environmental risk factors. For example, um, poverty is one of them. Um, but I think the the main finding here is that within cancer control planning, it is important to address these modifiable risk factors at the population level, um, but also put that in the context that this is not the whole picture of cancer, that within cancer control plans, um, there also have to be mechanisms for early diagnosis and effective treatment of cancer considered as well. This is just one piece of the puzzle. You said at the outset that you don't want the main message to be taken from this about personal responsibility, but it seems like there is some, isn't there? I mean, you know, not everybody smokes because of social economic conditions. Some people smoke because they want to smoke, and not everybody drinks because they're alcoholics. Some people drink because they like to drink, and some people are very overweight, not because of metabolic issues, but because they eat too much. Yes. Um we certainly do not want to blame individuals for their disease or for their cancer because um, these risk factors that we studied are just that. They are one factor of many that could contribute to the development of cancer, one of which, as you mentioned, being genetic. Um, so certainly, yes, people should not be blamed for their disease. And as I mentioned, the behavioral, the behaviors such as smoking and drinking, as well as m metabolic risk factors like high body mass impact index, excuse me, is heavily influenced by the environment um, in which they live. And we actually found within this study that the risk attributable cancer burden differed by country, depending on the country's level of sociodemographic development. So um, the sociodemographic development index is informed by things like um, level of or amount of education in women, um, the poverty or sorry, the income level, as well as uh, fertility. So those are some factors that go into determining like country by country um, how these risk factors might differ, differ per their environment. Kelly Compton there is uh, with the Institute there in Washington, Health Metrics and Evaluation, University of Washington, and one of the study co-authors. Kelly, thanks. Okay, so if you're back to work or 
Maybe you never left during the pandemic. Are you finding that your your coworkers just you know they're not as friendly anymore? Maybe maybe you invite them out after work for a, a drink or coffee, and they they say something subtle to you like, "Hell no." <laughs> Go away. (laughs) Stop asking me. Uh, More and more people are breaking up with their work friends. Gallup poll surveyed hybrid the workers around uh, in June and found 17 percent said they had a best friend at work. That's down from 22 percent who say they had one in 2019. Juliana Pillemer, professor at New York University's Stern School of Business, has studied work relationships. So there's a pandemic right in the middle of these surveys. I imagine that had a lot to do with this. Yeah. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So absolutely. I think one of the biggest drivers of this trend is this move to hybrid work, right? So maybe you guys haven't experienced it, but most of us have experienced the hell that is a Zoom happy hour at this point, right? So (laughs) when that became the way that you socialize with your friends, I think a lot of people started to check out and, and say, you know, this, this isn't worth it to me anymore. And the joy of kind of bumping into someone at work is just hasn't been the case, you know, and and I think if you look at those numbers, right, you see not much of a change for people who still are going into the office, you know, I imagine, you know, you guys still like to hang out with each other, but but you see a big difference for people who are working remotely or hybrid workers, they just say, you know, I don't really know these people, I don't run into them organically. And so it doesn't really make sense to try to build relationships with them. Yeah, just for the record, Mike and I don't even like each other. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we just play this on the radio yeah, yeah there you go yeah that's awkward but you know. yeah it's not, but you know what the heck uh <laughs> no but but uh this can't be good though right because i, I know through the years of of work uh, one often ends up with lifetime friends from work or at least we used to so if we don't get them there and you don't carry over some from like maybe when you went to school where do you get them yeah, you know, this is a this is a great question. And I think that a lot of people are probably that work friendships can be really underrated, right? And so I do worry both for organizations and employees who are saying, hey, I'm not even going to try to do this. You know, from the employee side, it's really a reason why people show up and, and stay at work. You know, if you look at that same Gallup poll that you guys were just talking about, they use that um, measure of do you have a best friend at work as their engagement measure, measure because it's such a good predictor of whether people are engaged at work, whether they're going to stay. So really organizations who say, yeah, whatever, everyone can just work from home. We don't care if people form relationships, potentially risk having a lot more people turn over. Um, you know, I think for for individuals, for for workers, not only do you miss out on a lot of potential joy, you know, relationships, I'm, I'm biased, I kind of study these things, but I think relationships are, are kind of the reason we, we are here. Um, but if you care about more of the professional outcomes, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of what drives promotion, hiring, you know, whether you like someone, we hate to kind of admit that, but, but um, there's some data out of Stanford that says that even though remote workers might be more productive, they actually get promoted less often. And while the data don't explain exactly why that is, um, a big reason seems to be that, hey, if you just don't know if someone is a nice person, you want to keep them around um, because you're friends with them, you're, they're less likely to uh, want to promote them. We, so I think that is a potentially a big a big um, downside for both organizations and individuals who say, yeah, we're going to break up with our work friends. We've done a couple of stories on the, the quiet quitting um, lately. I'm wondering if that has something to do with it. Are there a bunch of people out there that are just kind of done with their jobs? And so... For them, it's like, yeah, I could go out and we go grab a drink, but like I already put in eight or nine hours. I don't know if I want to talk about work for two more hours at the bar. 
I think that's totally part of it. You know, if you look at millennial generations um, and especially Gen Z, you know, I'm, I'm a millennial. I'm 35. It's crazy that 35 is, I don't know if this is considered young anymore, right? But, you know, younger <laughs> generations, right? People who, um, like you said, people used to show up to a job and expect to stay there for 5, 10, 20, maybe a lifetime, you know, all the, these years. Now that's not the case at all. So if you look at millennials, the average age they stay in a job is about two years, For Gen Z, it's like one year or eight months, right? And so part of it is like, yeah, why am I going to invest in a relationship with you if I'm only, if I'm, if I already have one foot out the door, right? If I'm planning on looking for a new job in about a year, um, there's no use in kind of investing in those relationships. I also think you hit the nail on the head, right? When we're with the pandemic, especially if you work from home, a lot of us are working from their, from our couches, right? And the only way we signal that the workday is over is we just, close our laptop or like switch to Netflix. Right. And so if you're feeling this, <laughs> it's bleeding between, if there's no, no boundary between like your work life and, and your home life, who's going to want to go get a happy hour with someone from work once that kind of day is over, because they really don't have any kind of separation already. You, you know, when you, when you just said that, I was thinking to myself, what a sad commentary on where culture has become. <laughs> <laughs> We hey, I love Switch my Netflix. True words were never spoken. No, right? no, no. Yeah. So is, is there like a fix to all this or, or is this what we're doomed for? Yeah, you know, so I'm actually, I have some research in, in progress. I think there is a fix. And, and you know, I was going to say to you guys, like, when you asked if we're, if we're on a breakup, um, we might just be on a break. You know, people <laughs> might be on a break with their friends. We're not sure if it's a breakup yet because I think you know, things really got shuffled around during the pandemic and, and we're still kind of waiting and seeing what work looks like. You know, a lot of organizations are investing in bringing people back. And so we might see this turnaround. Um, you know, I also think that organizations and workers are going to have to be a little bit more creative than like a Zoom happy hour. You know, if we do stay virtual, there are ways that you can form and um, you maintain relationships virtually, maybe taking virtual exercise classes together, you know, doing other kinds of fun activities that don't require like being in the same place. I'm finding in some of my work that that actually does work in some cases, but, but you're just going to have to be a little bit more creative and proactive with, with how you form relationships. But is, I don't it, think- is it hard to get people to, to move to, to go places? Like if you commute for an hour, I mean, around here at LA, people can be in the car forever and they don't want to go somewhere. But if you live or you work at a building and you're close and there's like a neighborhood bar on the corner, maybe that's a little bit easier. I think you're so right. Right. Like we, yeah, LA traffic would, would drive me nuts. I live in New York, right? So I can just like, I have a 30 second commute to work. I just walk over to NYU from my apartment. But <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty lucky. Um, definitely, you know, definitely lucky in that regard. I don't think I think a lot of the reason a lot of people are choosing not to go into work anymore is because of the commute. Commutes are such a big contributor to unhappiness. So I, I think you're right. Like, why would you if you're working from home? Why would you then drive an hour? to meet coworkers for a happy hour. That, that makes no sense, right? And so I think that um, unless, unless people do start going back in more often, friendships are either going to fall by the wayside or there might be kind of these creative ways that, that people connect virtually, but it's certainly not going to be these like mandated happy hours from companies. So you have a 30, what'd you say, 30 second commute to work? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, Mike and I, we're going to go to New York. We want you to be our friend. Yes. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. There you go. Sounds great. I, 30... I'm down. I'll, I'll show you the little 10 minute radius that I walk around with <laughs> right next to Washington Park. Before closing the laptop and getting yeah. to Netflix. <laughs> yeah. All right. Exactly. Juliana Pillimer, professor at uh, NYU's Stern School of Business. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feld. All right, the prequel is finally here. House of Dragon, HBO on Sunday, long-awaited Game of Thrones prequel, takes place a couple hundred years before the events of the original show focuses on the Targaryen family. And it'll have some competition coming up. The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, drops on Amazon. That's on the 1st of September. With us now is Adam Vary, senior entertainment writer for Variety. He covers the business of genre storytelling and fandom. How are you doing? So I'm Adam, good. How are you guys? Good. So, um, you know, how much is writing? I mean, these are both very expensive productions, both the sequel or prequel, I guess, to Game of Thrones and also The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. These cost a lot of bucks. Uh, how much is writing on this for both companies? A great deal. Um, uh, over at HBO, uh, the new CEO of Warner Media, uh, sorry, Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zaslav, has uh, just even today released a memo to the entire company praising House of the Dragon, um, almost as if it was sort of the savior of the company. And uh, at Amazon, they've spent, uh, you know, by all reports, upwards of a billion dollars just on the first season of the show. And that's including the $250 million they paid just for the rights to make it. Wait, wait, so, wait, wait. did you uh, say they spent, on it. Wait, you, they spent a billion with dollars? A with a billion with a B, a two, $250 million on the rights, and then 400 and some million on, on the first eight episodes. And and then a lot more to pr- promote it. So it, it's 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 a lot of a lot of uh, of pocket change for Jeff Bezos uh, to to get this show up and running. All right. So we'll go back to the HBO and then we'll get back to Amazon. But for this one, are they also hoping that it's like sort of an apology for the last season of Game of Thrones, which nobody <laughs> liked? <laughs> I I you know if you talk to the people involved with the show, they they all very politely say that you know everyone involved in game of thrones was doing the best they could to end the series <laughs> the but i do i i do think that there is a sense of um maybe we could right some wrongs here but they're you know in some ways they're very different shows um game of thrones was really sprawling over multiple locations with a huge cast whereas house of the dragon is about one family uh and it's about the succession to the to the iron throne and it's basically just in in King's Landing. So it's it has a different vibe to it than than Game of Thrones did. But uh, now refresh my memory. When Game of Thrones first started, it was roughly what year? Uh, 2011. Okay. So since then, much has changed, has it not, in, in the television landscape, both for cable and for streaming. So isn't this a much more risky bet than it might have been back in 2011? Well, it's it's certainly coming with a great deal of expectation. You know, when when Game of Thrones premiered in 2011, people weren't entirely sure what it was. Fantasy had not really been a big thing in TV and certainly not at a premium uh, uh, network like HBO. Uh, And then it went on to basically dominate the whole decade and, you know, was one of the biggest pieces of pop culture that we, we had in the 2010s. So. 
uh, I there's a, just a great deal more uh, sort of expectation from fans and and a lot more sort of writing on people being disappointed. Whereas with Game of Thrones, you could just discover it and it you know you just sort of come to it and take it as it is. Whereas you know, House of the Dragon is a lot to live up to. And for Amazon and for Lord of the Rings and all the money they spent on it, um, what's the gamble here? Because it also seems like a super long time since we watched those movies. But some people, you know, they watch them every Christmas or whatever. But also those yeah. were huge epics on the big screen. And now they expect me to watch this from the couch. Yes. I mean, they they really are uh, approaching this as essentially, um, you know, a bunch of sort of mini feature films in episodic form, um, uh, you know, from all reports. Um, and the story that they're telling is like House of the Dragon, a prequel. It's set um, thousands of years before the events of The Lord of the Rings, as most people know them from the J.R.R. Tolkien books and the Peter Jackson movies. Um, and it tells a very a story that we sort of already know in some ways that you know that the creation of the titular rings of power and the 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 fight to defeat Sauron which is sort of depicted in the prologue of the first Lord of the Rings movie um but this they're using i think the scope of television to tell it in a sort of a real sort of novelistic way where you can really spend more time with the characters and get to know them and the hope i think is that audiences will really find a lot to love about those characters and want to follow them through what Amazon says will be 50 episodes of the show. Wow. Okay. Adam Very, senior entertainment writer for Variety. Are you going to watch either? I'm watch both, probably. Both? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of time. Eh, well. Okay. I got Sunday nights. Okay. If you're with your uh, kids right now, you may want to listen to this segment by downloading our podcast later when they're in bed. We're going to talk about couples and intimacy. That being said, a new relationship show that premieres on Sunday is taking a very different approach to helping couples improve their love lives. It's called Good Sex. It's going to be on Discovery+. Plus. The idea, one of the ideas, is for couples to film themselves together, then review the tape with a sex coach to see what they can improve upon. And the coach is with us now, Caitlin V., host of Good Sex. Thanks for being with us. So did this take some convincing for the suits to get this on TV? Um, that's a great question. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, we're on streaming, right? Discovery Plus is a streaming service. And so we have a lot more freedom and flexibility because of the nature of streaming. And so I think they were excited uh, to be able to push the format. Okay, so I'm curious, and I'm sure everybody else is, how did you get the couples to do this? Well, I'll say it didn't take all that much convincing. And obviously it's a tremendous and courageous act. I mean, all of these couples were so generous in putting their sexuality, their challenges front and center for other people to witness. But I think, you know, they're in service to everyone because we all get to watch ourselves and go, oh, like, okay, I'm normal. Other people deal with this. It's not that big of a deal. Um, so I think that they, they were part of the greater mission, which was to get something that would place sex and sexual well-being, um, you know, into a, a, into everyone's home and so they could actually have a direct experience of it themselves. And is that kind of the point to, to open this up a little bit and have these discussions? Because you've been doing this for, for years and years, right? Helping people, helping mm -hmm. couples. And it's always probably a hurdle to get people to even come to talk to you because this is, this is always thought of as something like, okay, you can get a therapist for a whole bunch of things. But like, this is like a private thing. 
Yeah. Sex is supposed to just happen naturally if it's with the right person. And it's, it's, that's all nonsense, right? Like nothing that's worth doing just happens naturally and with total ease all of our lifetime. Right. So I think that one of the greatest benefits to the show is just letting people know that like, it's okay to want, it's okay to need help. It's okay to have problems in between the sheets. Everyone does. And that there's nothing wrong with you and that there is help. And one of the major distinctions between coaching and therapy is that, you know, I think for people to go to a therapist, they often have like a disease focused, a problem focused model, but coaching is all about getting you where you want to go. So like your golf swing, you know, like you can work with a coach to improve that. It's not because there's anything wrong, but maybe you just want to play a better golf game. All right, so let's let's talk a bit about how the show actually comes together. So uh, couples, they uh, apply, I guess, that they want to, to have the coaching and they want to be in the show. Then what happens? They submit, I, they allow us to put cameras inside of their bedrooms. They put like really small, non-intrusive security style cameras in their bedrooms. So they're, they're pretty petite. Um, and then I receive the footage. We leave the cameras up for months the whole time that they're working with me you know everything that you're going to see over the the six episodes of good sex took place over months right all the changes and the transformation and yes at first everyone's very aware of the cameras but over time they sort of fade into the background and just become part of the scenery and that is when people are really the most vulnerable because they they forget that the cameras are there when you're doing the the session and talking to them and maybe walking them through the golf swing um, how <laughs> awkward is it at the like initial, you know, few times that you do this? You know, we live in a world today where porn is pretty ubiquitous and we're, none of us are really strangers to graphic sexual material. The difference is that most of the time in porn, we're seeing a very specific idolized body type that's having sex and enjoying sex, right? These people are normal. Uh, they they range in age and ethnicity and sexual orientation and gender expression. And it's so refreshing. I think once we get over the initial sort of giggly awkwardness of, oh my God, we're going to see me having sex. <laughs> sex is one of the most natural and most common things that we do as human beings, like right up along with sleeping and eating and, you know, coming in when it rains. Well, uh, and so I think that that initial awkwardness disappears very quickly. Well, in terms of people watching it on at, at home, I mean, how graphic, how much are they going to see? And are you concerned that people may may approach the program as if it's porn? You know, that's that's actually a really interesting question because I personally think that people can approach anything like it's porn, like whatever you're into, you can get into it. You know, if golf is your thing, there's a whole channel for that. Um, <laughs> I don't think that uh, I don't think that the show is very, very sexually gratifying, though. I don't think people are going to be watching it in order to get off. There's a way more stylized, specific and interesting porn on the internet. This is real couples having real intimacy. And uh, of course, there are certain things that we uh, uh, blur out and that you don't see at all. So even though, yes, it is by its very nature, a graphic show, um, we don't show things that are very scandalous. It's it's, it's uh, a lot of things happening under the covers and uh, things are left to our imagination. And of course, yes, there is all of the other things that you would expect as well. And do you think people watching are going to see themselves in these couples and, and go, oh, oh, maybe I could I could do better at that? A thousand percent. That's what's so exciting about the show is that if you're if if you don't have access to 
other people, normal people's bedrooms, right? How do you know what you're doing is normal? And this is the first time that we've ever just put cameras inside of absolutely normal people who have challenges with erectile dysfunction, can't reach orgasm, are having pain during sex, have mismatched libidos, uh, all of these things that are common. You know, at one point or another, every single couple is going to experience one of these challenges. And if you are the rare couple that's never dealt with any of that, I would love to meet you. Uh, you can find me online, Caitlin V. <laughs> I want to talk to you. Uh, I think what people are going to experience is the absolute normality of the challenges that these couples face. But of course, it's, it's also still very interesting and you know, I, it, it, you're not going to want to put it down once you start because you do want to see where these couples go with their problems and how they resolve them. How many of these are in the can now? We have six episodes. Uh, three of them come out today, August 19th, and there'll be one released every Friday for the next three weeks. And with different couples. So you follow five couples. Ah, and okay. then there are a series of, uh, of people that come in for a single session with me, which is not uncommon. You know, some of the challenges that people have, we can address in an hour or two hours, like, and, and actually make some real life altering change. So we see a, a, a man who's in his thirties who has not had sex yet, right. An adult virgin. Uh, we see a soft Dom who's a professional Dom who's looking for love, but her career is, uh, kind of getting in the way, uh, we'll meet a triad relationship, uh, which is a throuple and another, another way that that's called. So, and we'll see women that have PCOS. So we have a very, very wide range of folks that, um, that you'll get to meet on the show. All right. Caitlin V host of good sex on discovery plus that's in depth for today. And she's right. Week. And she's right. There always is the golf channel. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Practice your swing.